Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. I'm your host, as always, Sean DeVries. I hope you are well. This is a fantastic chat with my boss, who I get to talk to and work with every single day, Richard Doherty, and how he has managed to come from an engineer in Scotland to a hospitality CEO in Australia. Hope you're going to enjoy this time. Welcome to the Open Pantry Podcast for yet another episode. Thanks for tuning in. Fantastic to have you on board. Even more fantastic to have uh, my boss. So that's a that's a good way to start this podcast. <laughs> Richard Doherty. Hello, Richard. How are you? Hello. How are you? Um, so fantastic to have you on. Uh, with the two months I've been with um, Laneway Greens, it's been uh, a want of hours to have a chat uh, properly on my podcast. So so it's good for you to spend some time with me. I don't know how busy you are. I know you've got a really broad history across both hospitality and engineering um, over a long period of time. Did you want to sort of say where you first sort of started out and how hospitality played a part in that to now? Yeah, I guess so. Like, um, hospitality was kind of in the family when I was younger. I had some family members that owned bars in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So as a youngster, I like collecting glasses on the weekends or on night time, you know, you can tell, you know, they try and get the, the family involved. Yeah. And when I'm thinking about it, I can tell they were obviously trying to save some money. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but that's kind of where it started. I, I started an apprenticeship as an electrical engineer in Scotland, but it didn't pay a lot of money. So I had to work in, you know, I was 17, I was glass collecting in bars and nightclubs. I lived in my own at the time. Yeah. I didn't live too close to home. Mm-hmm. So then... I'd be collecting glasses at night time in bars and nightclubs and then as when I got to 18 I'd mm-hmm. be working in the bars and the nightclubs at night time at the weekends to kind of help fund my ability to continue with the apprenticeship. Mm-hmm. Most people that were in apprentices or apprenticeships were working or living at home still mm. so they had their family kind of supporting them but my I was working a little bit further away oh, so okay. I worked in a place called Her Majesty's Naval Base Clyde which was like a nuclear, which was like, like very so, intense. So far away from what I'm doing now. It was like a, a, a base where with the Britain, the UK, kept our nuclear submarines. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then I worked in a place called Coolport, which is where the nuclear weapons were kept. So I used to work, I was in a, so I studied electrical chemical engineering, and that's how I began. So is that an exciting thing for you? Or is that well, a scary you know, thing for you? It's funny, right? Like you don't think about it too much because in Scotland, it's just a, it's a quite an industrial environment. Yeah. Uh, there's a lot of shipyards. Kind of when you're brought up, you know, you're kind of guided into, you know, I think nearly everyone becomes a like a builder or a mechanic yeah, or, yeah, or yeah, an engineer yeah. of mm-hmm. some sort. If you're smart enough at maths and physics, you're kind of getting pushed towards engineering. Mm-hmm. So it was natural for me. My brother had studied maths and engineering. My dad was an engineer. Mm-hmm. So it was the kind of path that was obvious. Right. Uh, but I didn't like it. I didn't really love it. I liked it. I liked it to an extent, but some of it was it was really hard work. Yeah. <laughs> you know, it was like there was a lot of like to make ends meet. You know, it wasn't a big wage, and to make ends meet, I'd often have to be doing Saturdays and Sundays, twelve-hour shifts. I'd try and do night shifts, all sorts of stuff just to try and get enough of a wage to mm. get a head start because I'll, even at 18, 19 I wanted to buy a house and I wanted to do certain things but and I did I did do that well. but I was quite driven at that point mm-hmm. and then actually the way that ended was really quite there was a little bit of serendipity mm-hmm. one day I was going to actually I'd been my dad had been living in Norway at the time mm-hmm. and I was going to go and my dad had offered me an opportunity to go over there. He'd met, he had a guy that was looking for someone, had my skill set, right. but could talk a little bit to do, help okay. him with like sales back in Scotland. Mm-hmm. So I'd been offered a job. So I was going over for the interview on the weekend. And then on the Friday beforehand, mm-hmm. there was a union meeting and we all got called to it and they offered everyone voluntary redundancies. Wow. So I ended up putting my hand up and saying, he had like to put myself forward for this voluntary redundancy. Oh, wow. And then I got offered the money. Basically, and within a month, I was in the new job and I got the money. So, like, so it was a double week. Yeah, my dad always says to me, you know, if I fell head first in a puddle, I'd come out with a salmon in my mouth. <laughs> and so, so, what? So then you, sorry, I'm just thinking about a salmon in your mouth there. Um, so then you, so then you obviously go to Norway, right? I'm in Norway. I'm working in like engineering environments. Right. Uh, and from there, I kind of, 
started doing like contract work month on month off and mm-hmm. started traveling mm-hmm. uh, and ended up going down through europe ended mm-hmm. up coming down through asia doing mm-hmm. a lot of traveling and working mm-hmm. and then ended up in australia mm-hmm. so i came here basically on a working holiday visa originally mm-hmm. uh, and then done a number of like hospitality jobs in melbourne at the beginning like mm-hmm. cafes and stuff and bars mm-hmm. uh, stereotypical irish bars because <laughs> everyone assumed i was irish <laughs> <laughs> do you find that's the biggest bug where that people think you're Irish or, they don't, say or to, don't think you're Scottish? They always say to me, whereabouts in Ireland are you from? And I say, northeast, across the water in Scotland. <laughs> uh, they just assume, I think it must be because the Irish travel. Uh, yeah. But, <laughs> so, I ended up doing, I ended up working in the mining industry here. Mm-hmm. But it was that point that I kind of started working on, like, power distribution <clears throat> and different types of energy production and renewable energies and design mm-hmm. uh, and you know my mind at that point had already started shifting way towards like my, what my own personal impact in the world was like the re- one of the reasons I was leaving the like the, the naval base in the mm-hmm. UK mm-hmm. was because I had a couple of people around me at the time that are probably had probably more of a liberal upbringing than I did and they right. were just a little bit they were they were educating me mm. and giving and pointing me towards books that I should read, mm-hmm. and I probably realised that I was using my intelligence for something that didn't have a strong impact in the world, and it didn't really, I wasn't really going to have a lasting effect or do anything of I felt of value that was safe or healthy. You know what what's a nuclear weapon do? It's a yeah, it is what it is. You know. Was that like an epiphany moment or was that something you thought about over a long period of time and then just sort of made a decision? Well, I've always been a big reader, you know, like I always read, I've always read a lot of books. So, I mean, I wasn't, I wasn't naive to it, but mm-hmm. I guess I was just caught up in the trap of like it was an income and like I, I believed politicians and I believed a couple of other things about it being a deterrent. Nuclear weapons right. were a deterrent. Mm-hmm. You know, if we hold the weapon, then they won't attack us, mm-hmm. which is, is that what every bully says when they're holding a gun? Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, uh, yeah. so it's hard to, under, I mean, it's hard to know where to sit on the fence on it, mm-hmm. but for me personally, I just didn't feel too comfortable with it, so I kind of started to make the move. And at that point, renewable energies were really com- like coming to the forefront. Mm-hmm. Down in Holland and in Norway, we had a lot of wind farm generation. Mm-hmm. We had a lot of wave generation things coming out. Scotland is really well known for uh, innovation. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a large coastline. There's some really cool projects that I was paying attention to and studying. Wow. Okay. Uh, and from there, you know, coming over and working with some of the bigger mining companies here, they were looking at bigger solutions because they were in the outback, you know, mm-hmm. and they have to spend a, billions of dollars trying to run infrastructure for those places. Sure. So try to come up with solutions that can minimise infrastructure building. Yeah. So actually, not only does it save on production and manufacturing, mm-hmm. but it's also good for the environment. So trying to spend some time using my background and my kind of education to help try and solve some of the problems. I, was, I wasn't I was at a senior enough level to have a good enough impact, but it was a really enjoyable, mm-hmm. it was a really enjoyable process. Mm-hmm. But I'd spent a couple of years in Darwin. Right. Uh, in fact, just under two years. And I don't know if you've spent much time up there. I've not spent any time in Darwin. Well, two seasons is wet and dry, and mm-hmm. I'm Scottish. <laughs> so, you know. I so you just wait all time. You wait, 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 an epiphany moment. I yes. was in this place called Brock's Creek, which is like three hours south of Darwin, working for a, I was working for a contract for a gold mine company, mm-hmm. and they do these electrical shutdowns, mm-hmm. and it's usually either at lunchtime for an hour, or mm-hmm. end of day, mm-hmm. and I think it was about midnight, one night, and I was down like one kilometre underground, I'd driven the, the Land Rover down there on my own, and you've got to put, as you go down, right, you put your pass, mm-hmm. it, when you, it's just a board, and mm-hmm. you've got your name passed to say Richard's in here, mm-hmm. and then you go down to the next level, and then at like about the one kilometre mark, there's another board that says Richard's here as well, and it's basically doom. It's like <laughs> I, I, I'm thinking it's like the jaw, you know, like the the entrance to Hades. Yeah. You know, it's just like you can hear the ground move. It's like wow. You can hear the rock move a little bit. Yeah. Right. And. I was down there doing some work on an electrical panel and I remember just standing with like this big hazmat suit on with a head mask on, like the breathing apparatus up on my tiptoes, like I was trying to get like a, a tiny little screw on a screwdriver, mm-hmm. like and, I mean on the tip of my toes there's water running down the walls, I've got a head torch on, it's pitch black because I've turned the power off right, 
because it's like this like electrical shutdown and when my tiptoe is shaking my hands are like shaking and the, the screw just kept on dropping and, I, and it was honestly like 45 minutes of this and the water was just pouring down it was like 100% humidity yeah. 50 degrees celsius yeah. and I just thought what the F am I doing here? <laughs> I'm, from, I'm from Paisley in Scotland. How am I one kilometre underground? In Darwin. In Darwin. <laughs> what decisions have I made that has led to this? <laughs> and I thought, I know, money. Fair uh, enough. Right, mm. and I thought, yeah. right, okay. So I decided to have a bit of a change. I wanted to do something. I had, had good enough savings. I was early, tw- I was like mid-twenties. Uh, early mid twenties, mm-hmm. and I decided to move to New Zealand, and I, for no other reason than I wanted to ski and snowboard and have a bit. That of fun. was it. I wanted to have a bit of fun. I did. You yeah. wanted to go the opposite of what Darwin was. Yeah, I just wanted some season. I literally yeah. wanted seasons. <laughs> yes. I thought, I'm from seasons. You mean I'm used? <laughs> my body is used to the seasons. Fair enough. Like in, yeah. it's in my blood, right? Mm-hmm. We're going to probably talk about some things like culture and DNA. Mm-hmm. And what's really interesting is that the DNA of a human, like what you're used to, like how your what your body, your genetic makeup is made up of, mm-hmm. like my I'm made for seasons, you know, like I right. I'm northern I'm northern European, Scandinavian, oh, like it's just it's just who we are. Mm-hmm. Fair enough. So all of a sudden, I, I slept better. Everything was better, mm. uh, and then I w- I went for a couple of like basic electrical jobs that were in the ski fields and stuff that were just something that would just pass the time. Sure. And. I had a friend that was a manager of a bar in Queenstown and he said, do you want to just come and give me a hand, like, running this place? Like, oh, was it an actual management or like a barback position? Or? Well, it was originally just the barback, but it was like survival of the fittest, right? You know, you, you've probably seen it, you know, within a, within a month I was like assistant manager, <laughs> within two months I was a manager, and then on month three and a half I bought the bar. <laughs> what kind of bar was it? It was like a backpacker bar. It was a place called Fraser's Bar. Uh, we didn't have a clue what we were doing. Right. How long had he had it for? Well, he didn't own it. He oh, was just managing he was just it. Right, managing it. Not okay. and not well. Right. Okay. It was really easy to. It was one of those things where the bar was nothing special. It was all about the team, and in right. a place like Queenstown. Uh, it was a bit of a party place at the time, like a really big party place at the time. There's a lot of tour groups and your Kentuckys, your top decks. Yeah, all right. those big companies were pouring through. Yeah. So those, it was probably when I first learned about the power of relationships. Right. And okay. what you could do to generate things for business. Right. So I made it my point to like really get to know a lot of these tour groups, these tour drivers, the the reps. Yeah. And build strong relationships with them. Mm-hmm. And that bar went from doing like six to seven grand a week up to like. 45 grand a week wow. uh, while I was managing it before I owned it like mm-hmm. we came in and I brought in a couple of other Scottish guys and a couple of Irish lads and a couple of girls that we knew and we built like a really fun team uh, and what, you, what kind of people were you like what kind of people were they when you brought them in like why did you pick those people to come into the bar they were leaders they would have been they would have been the the decision maker of their group you know that's okay. the, the way you explain it like if there was ten, if they were, if it was them and five or six of their friends walking down the street, uh-huh. they would be the the pair of people that the other people would look to, to decide, to decide wh- where is the good night going to be, yeah, where is right. the good dinner going to be. You're they're the person in the know. So when we used to do interviews, we used mm. to do like interviews. There'd be like three or four of us doing interviews at the same time, but all sitting at different tables, mm-hmm. and we'd have like a queue of a hundred people outside down the mm-hmm. door waiting to do an open interview, and you know when they come in, we'd be like dance, do something fun, you know, like we'd kind of put people on the spot a little bit, just have a little bit of fun, because mm-hmm. uh, we just wanted people that were confident in themselves and mm-hmm. kind of were a bit spontaneous and like could have a laugh, mm-hmm. uh, so it was really about embedding a core group of those people with like two or three managers above them that were sensible, sure, that could control the environment and had, you know, they understood the security, they understood the rules better than everyone else and just really strong duty managers and from there we built a really good little kind of bar uh, but it's not it's not it's a, not a story that doesn't have ups and downs like mm. didn't go well like it, I, it was my first lesson about uh, turnover is vanity profit is sanity <laughs> or sort of the other way around it's very true isn't uh, it? you do uh, get hung up on what the top line's doing all the time oh you know it's all over here you know it's like mm. listening to a gambler they only tell you what they win mm-hmm. uh, so you get a lot of people saying oh we're turning over 20 million you're like yeah mm. but how much did you make mm-hmm. and 
it's all you mean and it probably talks to the point of how important a good business is and what it means from the ground to the top mm-hmm. and how well things have to be done because if you're just chasing that big margin at the bottom line there's a good chance you've not got a happy team or you're squeezing people too much and they don't like working with you mm-hmm. but you know we're, we're in an environment at the moment where we're getting squeezed a lot so it's tough but I ended up building up a bit of a portfolio of bars some went well some didn't mm-hmm. go so great mm-hmm. a bit of a trial and error of different trying different industries went all the way from backpacker bar up to high end cocktail bar that won awards it was called the Naughty Penguin uh, I do love that name when you told me that before. How did how did that come about that you started backpacker bar? Well, took on a backpacker bar and then all of a sudden started to do different bars. Like what what was the point that you decided to do two and then? I didn't want to be pigeonholed. So really, what happened was I bought a bar called Fraser's Bar and it was already branded and there was a lot of tour groups coming to it, so I uh-huh. couldn't rebrand it and do anything with it. Right, it would have okay. been really detrimental to. It would I, I'd have lost all of the actual trade. Uh-huh. If I changed it, they just liked what it was. It was like a, oh, a okay. basic environment where they could come and have fun. Right. But for me, as I was learning and developing, I wanted to start building a brand of doing different things. I wanted to try like creating something from scratch, mm-hmm. like building a team from scratch, mm-hmm. like playing with design concepts and actually, you mean a lot of my engineering experience. I designed the bars my own and my own. I started dealing with like breweries and bringing in contracts, mm-hmm. but. I'd done that with a number of bars, but like with Naughty Penguin, it was completely independent. I paid for it on my own and uh, put in an amazing team. Mm-hmm. And we actually made a lot of our... We were, this was like eight, nine years ago. We were making our, a lot of our own syrups and mm. a lot of our own sodas. Very and, different stuff. But like no one else was... In fact, we were probably a little bit ahead of our time. The bar mm. didn't go great, but I loved it. Mm. Because it was... It would have went brilliant here, but in Queenstown. It, they just went so ready for it. It was, you know, we were doing like Pinot Noir cocktails. There were, there were, there was, right, just didn't understand it. It was just certain things like I was, I was already involved in the orchards and different farms at this yep. point, with which yep. I'm sure we'll talk about. Mm-hmm. But, and I was like, I had all this waste product. We were making like cherry syrups, apricot syrups, mm-hmm. and we were just having so much fun mm-hmm. playing with drinks and concepts, mm-hmm. and even like alcohol free. It was just there was something about the alchemy of like creating something phenomenal with mm-hmm. different random. Like we would be out at bush creating collecting native like plant and, yeah, making, right. and like dehydrating or like extracting oils and mm. doing like flavoured smokes like we were, wow. doing, we were just doing some really cool stuff and what was what was bringing those sorry to break that up but what was bringing those ideas was that was that you do research because you love books and stuff <laughs> what, or was that people coming to you no nah, we had a couple of really good bartenders like we had a guy called yeah, Chase right. Bickerton and yeah. then we had a guy called Mikey Ball yeah. and a guy called Julian Green now Mikey Ball is now over in a, he was in a place called Paris Butter over in Auckland, mm. but he's worked in some of the best cocktail bars in the world, like top five rated on the planet. Sure. And he was with me, and then he went there. Chase Bickerton won like best bartender in Australia, and New Zealand with Lang Nathan, won loads of awards while working for the Naughty Penguin. Mm. I basically gave these guys, it was my fun project. I gave these guys like a blank canvas, didn't mm. put too much restraint around them for on cost of goods and everything, and just said, have fun. Yeah, right. Because I'm going to drink here, and mm-hmm. I want to really, really enjoy it, mm-hmm. and I want to, I want to have a pl- of a playground. Mm-hmm. It didn't, it didn't lose money, but it didn't make anything, mm. and it became, it became one of those things where I was spending ten more time on it than I was getting out of it, mm-hmm. and it just, I ended up just selling the lease back to a neighbouring tenant. Mm-hmm. And they built, they renovated, they sold and renovated and built a bigger business. But it was a really enjoyable process. Uh, I really liked it. But I had it at the, I mean, at the end of the bar cycle, I had enough. I'd been, I mean, it was a bit much. You've got to keep up with these reps. You've got to keep mm-hmm. up with these bus drivers. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you've got to, you're basically got to, your social life is basically your business. Yeah. And it just became draining. I'd like, probably like, lost one or two relationships because of it yeah, just right. like my focus had been there and not with them yeah, uh, and then I decided to have a bit of a hiatus from mm-hmm. hospitality and, and then I went to the orchards and I went and studied horticulture and agriculture at night time at Cromwell Polytech uh, just for something different and random to do because I was a bit lost mm. I really was lost so I was thinking, trying to, you were trying to find where your actual place was well I, I kind of like it was literally wanted to go home to Scotland at one point point. Mm. and I was like what's there for me 
What stopped? So what stopped you? The thought of, oh, well, there's nothing better there? Well, it wasn't that there was nothing better there. It was just the fact that maybe pride. I don't know. Sure. Like, it might have been pride. Mm. Like, I, I maybe felt like returning. Like, tail between your legs. Well, the, the thing is, is that when you're on one side of the world and they're on the other, they don't know what you've done. Like, I wasn't, yeah, I wasn't yeah, like, yeah. shouting and bawling about what I was doing. Sure. So I might have came back with a bit of money, but my mum would have still thought I was an electrical engineer. <laughs> you know? Like, when I go back home, my mum's always trying to get me to install one of her sister's showers or something, you know? <laughs> <laughs> Like my mum, because I'm not so present in your life all the time. Sure. And I'm not on social media, like, boasting mm. or showing things or, like, that's mm. not really who I am. Mm. Uh, they don't really have a massive idea of what I'm doing or what I'm trying to achieve. Sure. My mum a little bit with the social enterprises that I've worked in or, mm-hmm. or created. Mm-hmm. Uh, because my mum's a social worker and she's worked for charities. Right. So, so I speak to her a little bit about that. because there's an interest there. Yeah. Well... Because there's some common ground and I can get sure. I can actually get some advice from her. Right. Uh, so it's really interesting. So we've orchards. I got involved in these cherry orchards. We mm-hmm. started, and it was really, 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 really interesting. From the ground up, or were they existing? Cherry oh, they orchards? existed. It, they already existed. There was a guy who, at the time, had been putting out adverts to try and find a manager of a cherry orchard. <laughs> Right, and I'm and I'm telling you, I was lost. I'm not joking. Like I didn't know. I didn't. I just wanted to do something random for a little bit. Okay. You know how you hear about people like taking like a sabbatical and going yes. to become a personal trainer. <laughs> you know, you, this was one of those moments. Yeah. Except I didn't want to exercise. Uh, <laughs> so I had my dog at the time, and this guy, I I put in a I sent my CV to him, and he wrote back. He was like. You have no idea the breath of fresh air that I've just he said everyone he said everyone that's been replying to the ad has just wrote yes I want uh, yes I'd love a job on a farm you know right. he said that it was like local boys that were labourers or had been working on farms he says and they just wanted to like that's who the kind of that's who were reaching out to him to apply for these jobs yeah and I'd sent a CV and it was obviously all this engineering and all this hospitality oh, okay. and I'd owned my own companies and I mm. mm-hmm. and I was like twenty eight. Mm-hmm. 29 and he was <laughs> he was like well obviously you're not going to just take the job so I will incentivize you okay. so he built out this like option set for me which was like on basic yield from the cherries and, mm-hmm. the, and the cherries were it was like they'd already been set which means that all the work had been done the previous year and oh, summer, okay. was appro- summer was approaching yep. and so when the, you would pick yeah. yeah but there's a lot of work to do before then around irrigation uh-huh. which was really exciting because in irrigation uh, you know when a tree I don't know if many people know this but like when say you've got a cherry orchard uh-huh. and there's a lot of rain coming you know there's a, a heavy downpour of rain coming sure. the most important thing to do is for the five or six days leading up to the rain is to heavily irrigate the trees with water beforehand Really. so that the uh, not heavily just like gradually uh-huh. but Enough that enough, the, the okay, trees great. the trees will drink the water, uh-huh. so that when the rain comes, the train doesn't the, the the tree doesn't panic and drink all the water because it thinks it's in drought, and that is how grapes and cherries split. Oh. So what happens is the, it's a really dry climate leading up to summer. Yeah. So what will happen is, uh, the trees thinking drought 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 drought. The tree doesn't care about the cherries or the grape or you know the cherries or the grapes on the tree. Sure. They think that the tree's thinking about its future. It's up. It's next ten years. Mm-hmm. So what happens is when that rain comes, it drinks it all up, and what what happens is the water volume capacity goes into the branches, goes down into the grapes, fills them up or the cherries, mm-hmm. and then they split. Mm. And when those cherries split, there is zero market value. Yeah. So it goes from being like twenty two to twenty four dollars a kilo. To five dollars a kilo. Yeah. Wow. Now, can you imagine running a restaurant and overnight because mm. it's been raining, you need to sell your food at 25, like seventy-five percent mm. cheaper? Yeah. That's what happens to an orchard. Mm. So I got really, really interested in the one. I had to learn the practicals, the basics. So the night college was really good because I was learning about like tractors and like how you mean like fun stuff. Yeah. All the fun stuff, like, mm. but you were learning about uh, like. Sp- you had to learn how to spray, which was you got these large sprayers, so you've got to learn all like the chemical compositions, 
and I was learning all about the nasty things that were going in. So I was like mm -hmm. studying on the side about like organic farming and how to use calcium and other things that, mm -hmm. to protect it. Uh, so it was a really, really, really interesting process. But he built me this kind of option set where if I got a specific yield, I'd get, I'd end up with a share. Well. And that was the first time I'd ever been in an environment where that happened. Mm -hmm. uh, did that freak you out a bit, or that exciting? Nah, that's like, you mean I've always been driven by, mm -hmm. like I'm I'm a, I'm a put a carrot in front of me kind of guy. Yeah, fair enough. Like I'm not driven by the, you mean I'm I, I'm not a great employee. Right. As you can imagine. <laughs> Maybe a bit like yourself. No, I'm <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, you know, I think it's good to. I mean, I like. I like to have people in the organisation and the company that questions things. I like people that have different types of minds sitting around the sure. problem. Mm -hmm. Not everyone, in a higher and specific. Some companies they don't like that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I love it because mm -hmm. it makes us all think differently mm -hmm. and thinks makes us think better and be better. As long as everyone's caring about mm -hmm. what it shows that they care. Mm -hmm. uh, but he incentivised me and I smashed it like I'd done really well mm. and I ended up working with some of the different farms around the area I ended up working with the packing houses I was learning all about wastage mm -hmm. and a whole heap of different things it was such an interesting thing for me to do amazing but there was a lot of solitude and I as you know I've got like a crazy amount of energy yes so you mean my dog was exhausted <laughs> <laughs> So it was good. It was a good time, but you I mean at the at the end there was a certain point where I thought I've learned, I've made some, I've made some money here, mm -hmm. and I'm going it's to, time to move on. It's time to move back, and like I've I've got my head sorted. To go back to the irrigation quickly, yes. for one second. Yes. What was really cool about it was there was a lot of electronics. So I went. I remember going to the irrigation place and then going to like this electrical shop, and I thought, well, really, like if we can control the moisture content. Like, if mm -hmm. we can monitor the moisture content, mm -hmm. I can actually just completely automate all of the irrigation. And then if it's all about soil compositions, like nitrogen, calcium, well, I can probably monitor the composition in the orchard at different places. And then I will create numerous baths of these minerals. And then I'll create, like, a, a drip feed system into a larger tank which will monitor the level in there and then what I'll be able to do is I'll be able to send in bursts to different areas of the orchard, different compositions of the minerals so I can irrigate different points to make sure that the soil composition is at the strongest for these cherries to grow. Wow. And that was a really interesting project. Is there anything about building teams? Yeah, it's exactly what you do. Mm. That's exactly what it is, right? Like mm. it's if you think about things in a reverse engineering, mm. and you think about how you scale or grow something, mm. you've got to find what areas to grow, how and when and why, because nothing is the same. All the individuals are different. Mm -hmm. uh, everyone needs different care. Everyone needs a different version of you, mm -hmm. uh, and it's like hyper care. Mm -hmm. And you, you mean like there's you know it yourself. Mm. Like you've probably seen it since you came here. Mm. Uh, we're in an environment now where if you don't care, you won't survive. Totally agree. It's just so competitive. It's not even, a, you know, like it's, it's just what's expected of us, like as we evolve as a civilization, I believe, mm. as we grow and become better people and mm -hmm. we become, you know, like there's a lot of things going on in the news right now that are a bit, it's a bit scary for hospitality. Yep. But what that comes from is a culture in the past of not caring. Really, really, I was about, yeah, really, really, exactly really, really, it's just bubbling up, right? What mm -hmm. we're getting is the, we're, we're at the five, we're the end of the curve of the five years of people not giving a f, yeah, yeah. seven or eight years ago, mm -hmm. uh, and people that were probably pretty good people just getting the wrong people around them and listening to them too much, mm -hmm. and not having enough people around the table asking why. Totally agree, and I think also probably a culture that was um hyper excitement and and almost I, I was thinking about it the other day like it's I almost think the teams of the 80s and 90s and especially in the 90s when I came through and the reason I didn't want to become a chef was about I, instead I became a baker was I didn't want to think thrown at my head you can at least go in at four in the morning and the one's screaming at you exactly dough's a lot you know easier on your head than a pot so um, but it's almost army like or it's almost military like 
those kind of kitchen environments from the, the 80s and 90s from what I hear and what I read and, and who I talk to on podcasts and stuff like that. And I think those kind of chefs, um, you know, KPs, waiters, managers, were just used to working 60, 70, 80 hours a week because that's just what you did. And that's just what everyone did. Yeah, and if you didn't if you didn't do it, it was almost like you were weak. There was like a there was like a, a strong masculinity to the environment at that point. Mm-hmm. It was quite toxic. Correct. Uh, you know, there was no diversity at all really. Mm. You know, I mean I can think of like females in kitchens were not getting treated well, you know, like they would be leaving crying mm-hmm. and there'd be things getting said to them like if you can't mm. if you can't if you I mean if you can't act like a man, don't try and do a man's job. You know, yeah. it was like there was I heard and I was only be like cleaning dishes at fifteen, sixteen and I'd hear things like that. Yeah. Exactly. Uh, I don't really, I mean, that was Scotland. I don't know if the culture was exactly the same here, but I'd imagine it would have been global. It was, I think it was different here because we was we had so many different cultures that we were bringing together in Australia. So you just had different ways of people talking to each other and language and, and subsets in the industry. It was quite, um, through the late 90s, early 2000s, when I was, you know, starting out, like it was quite an interesting time. But did you have, like, so in Australia, and especially Melbourne, like if you think of like Ligon Street, Sure. There was such a diverse amount of restaurants, like yes. different uh, cuisines. Yes. Was it common for people that were chefs to be chefing in a cuisine that wasn't their maybe ethnic background? Because or was it, or was it was the diversity beyond then at that point, or what was it? When I was in Adelaide, coming through the ranks, then like that was happening a lot. So if you're an Indian, you do Indian cuisine. It would be quite weird for you to all of a sudden do Ethiopian or something mm. like that. So it was very much stay in your lane. Like, we want to herald you to stay in your lane. So, but I think that's very different now. Oh, brilliantly so. Yeah. I love it. Yeah, it's like, a we, cool thing. Like, we were at an Ethiopian restaurant the other day. Mm-hmm. I love it. Mm. It's, it's amazing going to all these amazing different restaurants and drag get. We're so lucky mm-hmm. to live in a city and a country that allows us to live the way that we do. And do different things. So now you're the CEO of Laneway Greens. Um, uh, an amazing brand. Um, amazing heritage of the brand um, going in a different path now which is cool how have you taken that experience from engineering from cherry orchards from bars and that kind of stuff and, and brought that into the team and environment you want to create here at Laneway there was a couple of challenges when I first came here there yeah. was a obviously I had I mean previously I'd started our health food QSR yep. in New Zealand, New Zealand yeah. and had partners and it hadn't went well and I had to kind of come in and mm-hmm. in an unemotional way mm-hmm. really look at the business mm-hmm. in a particular fashion which was 80-20 mm-hmm. to begin with like what's our best products why are they selling and replicate more of it mm-hmm. simple stuff but then there was really strong elements of why the business was failing it was because we were using fresh produce Mm-hmm. And it was forever changing, mm-hmm. and there was no lock-in of prices. Queenstown was a quite a difficult market. New mm-hmm. Zealand was, and South Island particularly. So I really got interested in technology and what tech could do inside of hospitality businesses, coming from an engineering background. Mm-hmm. So I there was a local company called Loaded Reports. So it was a guy from Dunedin who would built a a software for bars, mm-hmm. but it had no uh, specific hierarchy. Mm-hmm. It was like a bit of a flat model where. You could build a raw product into a recipe and then you could use the recipe in another recipe but mm. you couldn't there was no like specific ta- categories called sub recipes menu items like right. so i had to like so i remember taking on the software it was pretty cheap and actually like completely bastardizing it mm-hmm. and developing it completely mm-hmm. like inside of his own framework not developing it literally just making it work for me sure. and he called me one day and he was like what are you doing inside of my system and i was like <laughs> What do you mean? He was like, I've never seen anyone doing what you're doing. Like you're using like non-locature systems, like which is a engineering term for like your own coding system. Oh, okay. So I was creating all my own coding systems and like, like mm. so maybe like a barcode. The first number was maybe the region that the vegetable came from. Mm-hmm. The second region was ma- like all the way down to like the end number. Maybe the end number being the fridge that I kept it in. <laughs> right. Right. So like every number means something. Mm-hmm. Like do you remember we had a meeting the other day and the lady from the juicing company said that the, 
the, the number at the front tells you whether or not it's in the barcode tells you whether or not it's been made in Australia or made somewhere yes. else. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So that's like a non-locature system. Right, okay. Uh, so I kind of started creating these systems and as I developed I started taking on more technology. New Zealand was quite a hotbed for like quite cool stuff like deputy scheduling. Uh, it was in Auckland. Mm-hmm. Uh, there was a, there was like Vend comes from Wellington. There's some mm-hmm. really cool things coming from New Zealand technology wise for and Zero's from the UK. Yes, Zero's well. from Wellington too. Yeah. So there was just so many things coming out of New Zealand that were amazing for technology. So there was I was at a kinda lucky point mm. where I could jump up and meet someone and so I brought all this technology in and I was like, Oh my god, now I can understand how we are making mm-hmm. money or how we're not making money. Mm-hmm. And I managed to turn that business around and make money, which, mm. like, to be honest, it was make I was losing a lot of money. Yeah. Uh, so I managed to turn that around. It went, I made money, and then it dropped a little bit, and then uh, there was kind of tougher economic situation going on in Queenstown at the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, rents were getting becoming crazy. Sure. I seen the writing was on the wall. Right. Uh, and I sold that company off. Mm-hmm. Uh, and then it was then that I took a break and met the investors from mm-hmm. Limey Greens, who mm-hmm. invited me across to come over and do a. Let's call it a, a bit of an audit or a bit of a consultancy sure. to have a look at the company. There was a lot of they had not they didn't have really any strong systems in place to like for it to be a strong enough foundation to scale. Right. Uh, and these investors came from like quite a strong scaling environment, mm-hmm. but they'd never worked in food, so they'd worked in a lot of retail where mm-hmm. you know you could spend a certain amount of money and just get boxes of clothes arrive and you put them on the shelves and everyone looks cool and it's easy to follow a handbook and a guideline about how you behave because sure. that's all you need to think about sure you don't need to think about like oh my god is the t-shirt going out of date in two days yes like it's a different world you like you know you know <laughs> so you have to have really strict control measures and yeah. skill yeah uh, so when i came here it was a very disjointed team mm-hmm. it was a very disjointed group there you I mean there's a lot of stakeholders that were not not really happy so there was a bit of a first four or five months was quite a difficult period of like trying to like restructure the company regrow the company like i basically took it back to basics mm-hmm. i stripped out a lot of things like mm-hmm. we didn't really understand where our revenue was coming from correctly and how much we were making from what areas and a lot of the coefficients that were leading to i mean we didn't understand like the labor costs enough around coffee and where they i mean we had it was just so disjointed yeah there was a, and it was there was a lot of you know why do we sell coffee and the question the answer was because people want coffee you know there was right. a lot of like we didn't really know what we were doing the company mm. had lost its way which was really interesting because i first met laneway greens when it first opened in Flinders Lane mm-hmm. and I was in love with the brand straight away mm-hmm. like it had something magic and I was jealous <laughs> I was could you put a finger on it or was it just a was it just a feeling oh, as you walk in they was just they, they just done, they, they'd done it there was just you know that thing that you there's a specific type of magic that's yeah. really hard to do yes. unless you have you it's it's because it's you you do mm-hmm. something mm-hmm. so the boys that started it the Caller brothers that started the business just had such an amazing eye for aesthetics mm-hmm. and design and uh, flavour profiles. There was three brothers mm-hmm. and they'd done such a good job. They'd done such a good job creating something. Uh, the challenge for them was taking on investment and not really having that uh, business experience behind them to scale. Sure. And probably what they'd done was invested and built a couple of sites that maybe took the brand in the, the slightly wrong direction, mm-hmm. but it was enough to confuse and... Conf- you mean, basically, they were running three different types of business sure. inside of it. Inside of and the brand, then yeah. al- rather than recreate that perfect business that they had, which they could have done, mm-hmm. they kind of went to a slightly different path. Mm-hmm. And a whole other set of unique challenges came about, which when I arrived and I worked with them, you know, they they were quite happy to just do what at this point they wanted to sell their shares mm-hmm. so myself and the investors mm-hmm. uh, bought them out and we decided we were going to spend a lot of time and resources mm-hmm. really building a really strong product and a really mm-hmm. strong team mm-hmm. and then we would scale and obviously that's how you even came about you know mm-hmm. I, I was I went through I tidied a lot of the back end up, a lot of the historicals, a lot of the issues that we had in the business, mm-hmm. and then I decided to start hunting down 
who I felt were some of the better people in the industry to come and help us scale. Mm -hmm. Which, you've, as you know, around us, you can see that we've got a mm. pretty strong, really dyna strong, group of strong dynamic and diverse team, mm. which is really important to me because I don't really want to be the smartest guy in the room. Was that, was that hard for you to, to actually think about that you, that you don't want to be the smartest guy in the room that you have to? Because that's a real flaw with most leaders, right? That's, especially male leaders. It's the easiest decision for me. Especially in hospitality. Because they will, you know, want to be the centre of attention. They want to be the one who makes decisions. They want to be the one who controls it. They'll often employ people who are not beneath them, but certainly not as skilled as they are, or especially on paper. Like was was that no. always something in your repertoire that you're you're happy to take on feedback? You're happy to be the uh, person always, not well, not always. I guess not when I was younger, but as I've developed. I'm super aware of what my weaknesses are and what sure. my strengths are. Sure. And, you know, I, I believe in, like, specific systems. You know, in, in Scandinavia, for instance, when you're at school, mm. uh, I've got two little sisters in Norway, mm -hmm. just, so, just to give us a point of reference, mm -hmm. who are quite young, actually, they're only 12 and 16. Mm -hmm. uh, so what they do is, in school, like, if you have... So you get taught eight subjects. Right. But when you have... You know, like, when you're not good at specific subjects, uh -huh. they don't force you down that path to become okay at that subject you focus on what you're really good at and you become great at it right it's right. like a bit more socialist sure a bit more of a it's just how they, they, they work yeah. so <clears throat> that's how i think i think like if someone has a specific mindset for something and they're excellent at it mm. it's obviously very in important that i have a generalist sense of knowledge and understanding on the topic sure even at a higher level for strategy, mm -hmm. and I will read like hell mm -hmm. to understand it, mm -hmm. so that I understand what they're saying to me. Sure. But I don't need to know it intrinsically like they do. Mm -hmm. I trust that they are going to make good decisions, sure. and I will delegate that authority to them so that they understand mm -hmm. that they have the power and the control to make those decisions. Mm -hmm. uh, and I will trust people, you know, like, we have specific goals and metrics in the business that we're trying to achieve, and at the end of the day, like, if we have quarterly reviews and we're looking at how are we achieving these and we're not achieving them, then we obviously only have conversations about why we're not achieving them. Yes. That's different. But yeah. I mean, the trust is there. Yes. And it's the same with me with investors. You know, like they've got the same metrics on me. Sure. And I like these are like a bigger like I've got to create a strategy or thought process, mm -hmm. which is quite hard sometimes because in this kind of company when you've only got three stores at this point, but we've got investors that want a hundred stores. Yes. You know, you've got to look at it like, you've got to manage, you, you will, because it's got to be organic growth, it's got to be sensible growth. Where's it going to come from? You know, we're not just going to open all these stores with not, without having all these processes, processes and, and systems in place. Systems in place for, like, and I think you can probably see, like, I'm investing heavily in people and even like contractors and third party companies that we're dealing mm -hmm. with at the moment, mm -hmm. who, not many businesses when they have three sites, would ever do that. No. You know, that is something people start thinking about when they get to 10, 15 sites. We're doing it really early on and putting infrastructure in place and I need to talk to the investors and speak to that and like, I'm raising money for this. Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm talking about working with Melbourne Business School, I mean, it's a good example of how you innovate and how you do things intelligently mm -hmm. without having massive resources. Mm -hmm. So before you came here, before mm -hmm. maybe, uh, maybe three of the senior management team were here, mm -hmm. And I had had to move on the exist the old management team. Mm -hmm. uh, I had a situation where I didn't have the resources available to me, so I decided to go to Melbourne Business School, and I'd already had a couple of interns, and I decided to put Lane Me Greens forward for the Entrepreneurial Mindset course, yeah. which meant that in September, I was last September, uh, they would give me six people. Or mm -hmm. five people, sorry, who would become the Lane Greens team from the, the MBA at Melbourne Business School. Mm -hmm. And I would create two or three possible projects for them to work on. And they would go out and do all the research and come back and give us a, give, use Lane Greens as a case study so that yeah. we, they could give us solutions and yeah. kind of paths to success. Mm -hmm. And what was really interesting was that they, I decided to let them do it on segmentation of our market mm -hmm. and also the product find out as much information on what our consumers are saying and thinking about us. Sure. Like, I want to know what our score levels are. And they brought that back to us and we actioned it. Mm -hmm. And overnight, 
literally the company was back in the race. Mm. You know, mm-hmm. it was we were we went through a period where we made a mistake bringing in these trays that we tried. Yep. and it wasn't that the trays there was an issue with the trays. Like the food just didn't really work for us. Mm. We made a mistake and we closed down central kitchens and we tried to do specific things that were. Sure. We were we had our hands tied behind our back a little bit, mm-hmm. uh, but I made some I pr- I I made some decisions that probably were wrong. Mm-hmm. Not probably they were wrong. Right. Uh, but I'm comfortable with those decisions and I'm happy that I made them because I think what it done was it gave us a reset and it humbled me a little bit again, which I enjoy. I like to be, I like, like failure's, failure's a bit refreshing. It's like jumping in an ice water bath mm. for me. Mm-hmm. Like it resets me and pulls me back and sharpens my focus. And then it was, you mean our sales really dropped with these trays? Like it really dipped? Uh, the staff weren't happy, I mean the food wasn't high enough quality mm-hmm. and we just had to turn it around to make it better mm-hmm. and I worked night and day to ha- to make sure that we did, brought in the right people, hired the right people mm-hmm. and ran at it. Mm-hmm. Because you know when you change menus seasonally Sean, <laughs> or you mean if I think when I got here, you know QSR brands are fast casual brands, mm-hmm. when I got here they, they had been changing the menu like when I say changing the menu, like every single item on the menu, yeah. every drink, I mean apart yeah. from smoothies, yeah. you've been changing every single item on the menu, mm-hmm. every season. Like no wonder the boys were exhausted. Yeah, it's a lot of effort and time. And so you know, money. I decided to go, wait a minute, looking at this research, there are four bowls from the history of Lamey Greens that sold exponentially higher than everything else. Why don't I just re- focus those bowls into a new menu and call them classics mm. and start building a proper structured architecture on a menu here mm-hmm. bring back the breakfasts mm-hmm. so we'll have breakfasts that are seasonal in part mm-hmm. uh, we'll have classics that are seasonal in part mm-hmm. where the colder items become hotter items mm-hmm. like grated carrot becomes sous vide baby carrot mm-hmm. something similar and then we'll have these seasonal dishes that have more, we're talking our curries, or stews, or yep. soups, really warm and, va- and like amazing items yep. where we can showcase some of the best cuisines from around the world mm-hmm. and bring them into the brand and show people how you can eat healthy food, totally. whole food, yep. from anywhere in the world. Yes. And we just kind of, and I mean that's, and then in the future, uh, there might be some dessert categories and some other elements that we work on. And obviously, as you know, we're working really strongly on drink strategy. Yeah, for, for, for me, for me, drink strategy is massive. Mm-hmm. I don't want to sell a can of coke, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm more, I'm looking at inspiration from around the world. We want to have really cool drinks, fresca concepts, and tanks that match food flavor profiles, so that the, the drink actually adds to the bowl. Mm-hmm. And obviously, working really strong inside a supply chain, so that we can bring our bowl cost down. Yeah, that's massive for me. Yeah, is to trying to bring it. Get the get our supply chain stronger, so that we can bring our price point down. So that we're more so that health and good food is more accessible to more people. Yeah. More times of the week, basically. It just makes sense. Yeah. What do you think you can grow the brand to? Well, Sean, that's a big question because <laughs> my mind, as you are, as you know, is can can go up and down. True. And the reason why I ask that is obviously we talk a lot in the office about. Sweet green, carver grill, um, uh, dig, um, all these brands in America, especially, we've got you know big competitors here who are growing pretty quickly. So it's it's hard to keep a it's hard to I can understand how it'd be hard as a CEO like yourself to really focus on what's important here in growing a big brand or a strong brand or both. Good, uh, glad you highlighted the two differences. Mm-hmm. Because a big brand is not a strong brand necessarily, right? Correct. We're saying that at the moment. Massively. Yes. Right, so a strong brand is where it's at. Yes. A strong brand with strong culture embedded. Mm-hmm. Having a hundred... I'd rather have 50 stores mm-hmm. that are phenomenal mm-hmm. than a hundred stores where people don't care. Mm-hmm. Or it's subpar uh, customer experience. Mm-hmm. I want... I want to have a moment. I want our stores to create moments for people. I want people to walk in and to walk out 
and be wow. Mm. Like, where do you get that anywhere else? Mm-hmm. We're not there. Mm-hmm. We're a bit off, mm-hmm. quite a bit off yet. Mm-hmm. But that's the objective. That's the goal. Mm-hmm. And it's not just about it being. Hey, we've got. 50, like if we are at fifty stores and we've not got that in all of them, we're not going to have fifty one. Yeah, yeah, totally agree. Right, so it's all about three stores being perfect, mm-hmm. or close to, mm-hmm. add a fourth, mm-hmm. and so on. This whole hey, we're going to have like twenty next year, is just bullshit. Yeah, you know, like a lot of people say it. Yeah, but I don't want to be the next brand that just goes woof all the way up mm. and then all the way all down, the way down again. we want to create something that has a strong impact and when I say a strong impact we want to change the behaviours of our supply chain we have like direct contact with our farms so that we don't have to go through a lot of distributors for it to get to us and we want to have enough volume eventually so that we can dictate the behaviour on that farm mm-hmm. which is really interesting because of my background now yeah. that I actually have a lot of that knowledge sure. so I know that if you if you've got a a farm that produces carrots mm-hmm. and you can say to that farmer we'll take all of it yeah you can you can then say show me your spray diary mm-hmm. i want to see what you're using here mm-hmm. and i want to show you or i want to work with you mm-hmm. to make sure that you're giving us the best product 100%. and that's what i want to do i want to have like 20 vegetables that we work with mm-hmm. maybe there'll be some seasonal variability mm-hmm. but things that we work with and we just have those 10 20 year relationships with these farms where we just keep on going and that's like really at root level right mm-hmm. and that's about setting behaviours and setting like expectations of where the bar should be set mm-hmm. and there's going to be some really cool technology that comes in in the next couple of years where we can trace and track that and we can do some really yeah, cool things yeah. there's some fun things happening but it's though it's that attention to detail and level that will be transferred and translated through to the team Mm-hmm. and that is the kind of individuals that we're looking for mm. and we want that knowledge to be kind of we want the staff to understand it and to behave it and to champion it and treat we want we want them to use the word we right yeah and when we, you can tell when you're when you're talking to someone you know and they start saying the word we that's when they're committed mm-hmm. so that's what we're looking for we're looking for a lot of people that say we it's a good way to win the podcast um, Rich, what's the best way that people can reach out to you and learn about what you're doing? Uh, feel free to add me on LinkedIn. Yeah. Uh, I'm always happy to talk to anyone. I'm always happy to catch up for coffees and chat. Mm-hmm. I feel like sharing. I'm all about the open information. Yeah, cool. But like old Elon. <laughs> uh, if I can share or give anyone advice or help, I'm happy to. Mm-hmm. Uh, and also, if anyone thinks they've got anything they want to share with me or thinks there is anything that I should know or learn, mm-hmm. I just want to absorb as much as possible. Cool. So, thanks for having me, Sean. No drama. Thanks for being on. Uh, I'll link up your LinkedIn profile on this podcast so people can have a look. Richard Doppie, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much for tuning in for another episode of the Open Pantry Podcast. I hope you got something out of it for your business, for your career. Uh, Richard just uh, dealt a lot into his career there, so I know it's going to be informative for you. I put in all the ways to contact him in the bio of this podcast, so you can, trust me, he's well worth the chat and the listen to, really responsive, so I think you're going to get something out of it. Until next time, stay well.